Because I said so, what mom or dad hasn't uttered these words? I realize Bill Cosby is a controversial figure. Certainly the scandals surrounding a man who was once so beloved serve as a reminder that uh, the Cosby Show plays scripted television with unrealistic characters and plots, not regular people. Like all the great shows of the 80s, I think, but it was still good entertainment, wasn't it? In any case, because I said so. Ephesians 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. We'll stop there. Paul continues on with something about fathers not exasperating their children, but we're not going to go there today. Anyway, children, obey your parents, that it may go well with you. This is a, a kind of blessing. Oh, it's kind of vague, but it's a sort of because I told you so. You see, blessing is peppered uh, in this manner throughout the scriptures. We see this in the Psalms quite frequently, starting with the first one. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. We see this in the Proverbs 22. Listen to the words of the wise. Apply your heart to my instruction, for it is good, or it will be pleasant, to keep these sayings in your heart and always ready on your lips. As we look at Jesus' first statement in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll, use, uh, we'll see that he uses a standard Jewish literary form, a beatitude, which basically goes like this. It will go well... It will go well with the one who, for that one, will receive. We'll unpack this more in a moment. For now, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read first 12 verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds in the power of your Spirit that we would continue to hear your word with joy. Amen. Now, although we're going to focus primarily on the first, because that's all we have time for today, the Beatitudes really shouldn't be taken by themselves. They shouldn't be separated. So we encourage you to return to this passage each week for the next couple of months, maybe even memorize it. In introducing the Beatitudes at the beginning of this long series we've called Words from the Hill, 
we need to consider some questions concerning the people Jesus describes, the qualities He commends them for, and the blessings He promises are and will be theirs. There is an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Uh, I'll post uh, it as well as uh, any Scripture references and quotes on our website or life share. If you don't feel like you need to scribble all those down, I can easily share them with you. First, we need to realize that the people Jesus praises are not distinct groups of His followers, some who are meek and some who are merciful and still others who must endure persecution. No, these are not groups of people, but rather eight qualities of the same group. They are meek and, mer and merciful and poor in spirit and pure in heart, etc. These are descriptions of one group of people. Also, we need to realize that the people Jesus describes are not some elitist group, like a spiritual aristocracy remote from the common run of Christians, as British theologian John Stott points out. On the contrary, the Beatitudes are Christ's own specification of what every Christian ought to be. So no, this isn't some elitist group, the kinds of people, as it were, that God usually blesses. Jesus isn't offering such a list. What he's doing is announcing the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount isn't a philosophical analysis of the world, as another British theologian, N.T. Wright, comments. No, it's about something, he says, that's starting to happen, not about a general truth of life. It is gospel, which means good news, not good advice. The word translated blessed could very well be translated wonderful news. The good news, the wonderful news, is that Jesus is turning the world upside down, and he promises blessings for all who turn to God and accept the new thing he is doing. More on that later. You see, God's intention was never to give commandments for us to follow and so earn his approval. No, his plan was and is to create new people with new hearts and new affections and new attitudes author David Platt says. He continues, and, and this is important, so take a look. The, the, this Old Testament expectation of a people transformed by God's Spirit is critically important for our application of the Sermon on the Mount. The larger context of redemption is a reminder that we cannot dismiss Jesus' words because we think the standard too high, as if we can't truly love from the heart or resist our lusts and temptations we cannot throw in the towel on praying like Jesus, giving freely of our resources or fasting in the right spirit. And this means that loving our enemies, perhaps the most difficult of all commands, is within reach of every Christ follower by the grace and power of God. This is not an exclusive group of superhero Christians. This should describe all of us who have turned to Jesus. Because in the power of the Spirit, we choose no longer to be conformed to the world, but instead to be transformed into kingdom people. If you were to turn to Luke chapter 6, you'd happen upon what would seem a discrepancy between Luke's and Matthew's accounts. But if you were to look deeper, which we don't have time to do, well, you'd see that Luke and Matthew are really getting at the same thing in listing the qualities Jesus describes. What the gospel writers, and most importantly Jesus, what they're depicting are the spiritual qualities or the state of kingdom people. 
For instance, in the first beatitude, Jesus isn't necessarily saying that it's wonderful to be physically impoverished or hungry or thirsty, as Luke would seem to suggest. What Jesus is talking about is a poverty of spirit and a hungering for righteousness. All that to say, each of these is a spiritual state or condition. Let's return to Theo and Heathcliff Huxtable. Because I told you so, or it will go well with you. What are these blessings that Jesus assures his followers? Well, know for certain that blessings refer precious little to what we feel or will feel, and much more to what God thinks of us. It's, it's more than a feeling, as the band Boston once trumpeted. Blessing isn't just happiness. It isn't, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. That's a rather absurd song, actually. If you're happy and you know it, well, then clap your hands. Or maybe Pharrell Williams' version a few years back. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. If you feel like happiness is the truth. If you know what happiness is to you, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Because I'm happy. You were all singing it. Don't get me wrong, it's certainly fun and upbeat, but happiness certainly isn't the truth. And a room without a roof? What happens if it rains? No one's happy then. Anyway, happiness is shallow. It's, it's vague. It's, it depends on circumstances. And the circumstances that Jesus describes don't sound like they'll result in happiness. Pastor, author, professor R. Kent Hughes says, happiness is a subjective state, a feeling. But Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed is a positive You want to try a different one? Try it. Okay. I'm going to start sounding like Josh. Test, test. Are we there? Dick's all messed up at the board back there, but we'll, we'll get it figured out. Um, where was I? Happiness is a subjective state, a feeling. Jesus is not declaring how people feel. He's making a, an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual. That means to be approved or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. So, blessed refers to the approval of God, or perhaps think of it this way, it is the smile of God. Imagine God smiling when he sees you. Psalm 67 says, may God be merciful and bless us. May his face smile with favor on us. Max Lucado called God's approval the applause of heaven. I was in my high school's jazz and madrigal choir for four years. You wouldn't probably believe me if I told you that I actually used to hate jazz. <laughs> I, I didn't get it. Uh, it was all dissonance and noise. In truth, though, I, I didn't like it because I couldn't play it. Well, every year in February, our choir traveled from the, my desert hometown of Yuma to the snowy mountains of Flagstaff 
to compete in a jazz madrigal festival. Madrigals are just like a classical kind of song, usually a cappella. Our director was himself an amazing jazz pianist, and to that point, I had proven ineffective at playing jazz, and most other music for that matter. Ineffective is saying it nicely. I was just awful. So I went along to Flagstaff not to play piano for the choir. I wasn't singing much then either. Instead, the only part I was given was the bass line on one song, an arrangement of I've Got You Under My Skin. Our bass player, our upright bass player, struggled to play this part. That was all I did. I made the trip to play one song on a keyboard. I had to buy a coat and everything because, you know, it was snowy there and seemed like a waste. But I made the trip to play that one song on a keyboard with only one hand. It was very humbling, humiliating, really, but it was what I needed. Sometime after the trip, I asked my director if he'd be willing to teach me. And so under his guidance, I eventually took to jazz. He eventually moved on to another school, so I became the primary player there. Well, at this festival, choirs perform for adjudicators who, who scrawl notes and, and grade the choirs according to how they're doing, and directors receive those scribbled notes and a cassette tape. Remember those? They received, we received a cassette tape of the adjudicator's comments. He would, you know, speak into this recorder during the performance. Well, my senior year, we opened with a number called New York Afternoon, which begins a cappella with the choir, and in the rhythm section follows with a couple of bars before the choir sings again. And so it sounded kind of like this. They went, grooving on a New York afternoon, and then we went. That was it. But the adjudicator, when that happened, he said, yes, way to go, piano. I didn't have a name. <laughs> I, I was simply piano. But I felt the approval. And I imagined the adjudicator smiling when he heard me. I could hear it in his voice. I think my former director would have been smiling too. Hughes says that if God's approval means more to us than anything else, then the Beatitudes are going to penetrate our hearts speaking to us in the deepest of ways. But here's the question. Do we want God's approval more than anything else? Not do we want to be happy, but do we truly want God's approval? If so, if you really want God's approval, then I would encourage you to pray this prayer with me if you're not ready to do so, then take it home. It's in the notes of your bulletin. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I long for your smile upon my life. So please open my heart to the meaning of the Beatitudes. I open myself to their light. Shine their rays into the deepest part of my life. Sear my soul. Heal me. Build the character of the kingdom in me so that you can call me blessed. Amen.
Now, just as the qualities can't be separated, meaning you can't be meek without being merciful or being pure in heart, just as the qualities can't be separated, so the blessings can't be separated. They are interlinked. Stott said the eight qualities are the equivalent of the responsibilities of being a citizen in God's kingdom. And the blessings promised are the privileges of living in that kingdom. In every community, city, state, country, responsibilities accompany privileges of citizenship, right? We may not agree with what those responsibilities should be or what those privileges should be, but we still have to fall in line. And so it is in God's kingdom. This leads to a further question. Are these blessings, these privileges, are they to come in the future or can we enjoy them now? The answer is both. Stott says the promises of Jesus in the Beatitudes have both a present and a future fulfillment. We enjoy the first fruits now and the full harvest is yet to come. For example, the the pure in heart, Jesus says, will see God. Certainly we will behold the face of God, Scripture tells us, when, when either we die and leave this earth to awaken in the presence of Christ or He returns in His glory. But there is also a sense that we can see spiritually the face of God now. 2 Corinthians says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Therefore, the promises are both present and future. If anything, the future tense that Jesus uses stresses their certainty, not merely their futureness. I don't know if that's a word, but Jesus stresses their certainty, not that they're coming in the future, not just that. So this leads to another question. Or there's another question. It's a problem we cannot avoid, so we need to settle it as we start looking into the Beatitudes. The question is, do these Beatitudes teach a doctrine of salvation that is earned by good works? Isn't Jesus, in fact, saying that those who show mercy will be shown mercy, and only those who are pure in heart will see God? Is Jesus really putting forth a laundry list of sorts, uh, an imposing, crushing list of things that we have to do to be accepted by God? Well, Jesus sets the tone with the first beatitude, which if we have time, we'll actually get to. (laughs) The first beatitude emphasizes salvation by grace, not by works. The kingdom of God is pledged to the spiritually impoverished, those who realize they have nothing to offer by way of merit. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole is a kind of new law, like the old law. It has two purposes. First, it shows non-Christians, those who haven't put their trust in Christ, it shows them that they cannot please God in themselves. Because obeying the law, the old law, turns out to be impossible. The law then directs them to Jesus. The Apostle Paul explained that he didn't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Secondly, the new law shows Christians how to live in a way that pleases God. Again, Paul 
God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Uh, More simply, it has been said that the law sends us to Christ to be justified. That that is declared righteous, acceptable to God. So the law sends us to Christ to be justified, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be made in His image. David Platt writes, We are accepted by God completely and totally because of a perfect Savior who has died a bloody death in our place and who has risen again in victory. We do these things not in order to earn acceptance before our God, but because we have acceptance by God and we want to glorify Him in everything that we do. So to sum up this long intro, the, the people described here are, uh, include all Christians in the ideal, not, not just a select few. Uh, the qualities commended are, are spiritual qualities, and the blessing promised, as Stott summarizes, the, the blessing is the gloriously comprehensive blessing of God's rule, tasted now and consummated later. More on that one in a moment. Okay, I think we're ready to look at the first beatitude. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, before we define what it is, let's talk about what it isn't. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean you have no value, that that in your core you have no significance. It is not an absence of self-worth. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we were bought with a price, so we must be worth something. To be poor in spirit doesn't mean you lack vitality, that you're spiritually anemic, so to speak. And being poor in spirit doesn't involve putting on airs of humility. So what is it, poor in spirit? Well, the word for poor here refers to poverty, a poverty so deep that the only way for a person to get by is to beg. They are fully dependent on the generosity of others. They can't survive without, with, without outside intervention. You might call it beggarly poor. Have you ever experienced this? Most people haven't. I haven't. Certainly, there have been times when we wondered how we would make it from one week to the next. I think we may have all been there, or maybe are there. But we've always had food in the pantry. Few of us in our country have known complete destitution. But that's what this means. Combine this sense of beggarly poor with the following words, in the spirit, and you get blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. It, it is a poverty of spirit and acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy, D.A. Carson says, an awareness and admission that we are utterly sinful and without the moral virtues adequate to commend us to God, Hugh says. I like the New Living Translation here in verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him. When you're poor financially, when you're poor financially, aren't you aware of it? (laughs) Normally we are. 
though some think that financial ignorance is bliss, we usually know, or at the very least, we might have a spouse who reminds us that we are. But yes, we, we know when we're money poor, but do we realize our spiritual bankruptcy? Look over in Luke chapter 18. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that, uh, oh, I need to jump down a little bit, down to verse 9. Jesus told them a parable to some who, who were trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up in, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A Pharisee was like a religious leader. Uh, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, who is regarded by most people as the, the, the sinnerest of the sinners, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, approved by God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. John Wesley, an 18th century preacher, theologian, said of the poor in spirit, he has a deep sense of the loathsome leprosy of sin which he brought with him from his mother's womb which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts every power and faculty thereof. But we don't like this. We don't like feeling inadequate. And, and so we reject this idea of spiritual poverty. For many, the answer to life is found in self. Hughes speaks of Christian narcissism promoted as biblical self-love. He quotes author and seminary professor uh, David F. Wells, theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness, holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes, all that remains is self. Hughes closes that section with a rather convicting image. He, he says that someday, long in the future, if God so wills time to continue, someday, long in the future, an artist would sculpt a statue of someone living in our time with his arms wrapped around himself in a loving embrace, kissing his image in a mirror or maybe on his smartphone. Conversely, Jesus says, blessed or approved by God are the poor in spirit. Well, understanding and even embracing our poverty of spirit is essential if we want to see God smile, if we are to know his approval. When Jesus began his public ministry, he read from the prophet Isaiah he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. For Isaiah, the poor were the exiles of Israel who hadn't compromised and who looked to God alone to rescue them. 
These are always the people that God comes to. Consider Mary, the mother of Jesus, who said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And when Jesus was born, the angels gave the birth announcement uh, not to those in the establishment, but to lowly shepherds. And then there were Simeon and Anna, among the first to realize Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God. These people represented the poor of Isaiah's prophecy, who were exalted by God. These are the people, Hughes says, to whom Christ is born and in whom he is born. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Poverty of spirit is essential for salvation. We can't know Jesus without it. But sadly, tragically, there are many people who consider themselves Christians but don't really know Christ. These are people who've never come to the end of themselves and realize that they have nothing to commend them to God. If this is you, I implore you, as God's ambassador, which all believers are, I implore you, I urge you to be reconciled to God. If you hear nothing else this morning, I plead with you to hear this. Be reconciled to God. Toward the end of the sermon, Jesus says some of the scariest words found in the Bible in speaking of those who think they know him but really don't. We will get there in the summer, and thankfully, I don't have to preach that sermon. <laughs> I, I don't think. Hughes says, the changeless truth is no one can come to Christ without poverty of spirit. This is not to say that we must have a perfect sense of our spiritual insufficiency to be saved. Very few, if any, come to this. Rather, it means that the spiritually proud and self-sufficient those who actually think there's something within them that will make, them, make, the, make God accept them, these people are lost. Salvation comes by faith alone. Ephesians 2 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You see, God withholds his grace from those who don't think they need it but he pours it out lavishly on those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy. No one can enter the kingdom without the poverty of spirit. We don't ever outgrow our need for the first beatitude. I think we, I think we don't need poverty of spirit. If we think we don't need poverty of spirit as though we've somehow surpassed it, then we're back at the start. And that's the trouble with our sinful nature. We want to be autonomous. We, we want to make it on our own. I'm, ri I'm ridiculous when it comes to this. I'll go to a store like, say, Home Depot or Lowe's, or instead of immediately asking for help, uh, I become adamant on finding whatever it is that I'm needing on my own, which even if I do, I probably have wasted a lot of time. Maybe it's the, the male urge to hunt. <laughs> I'm certainly not a hunter. 
Well, just as we can't come to Christ without realizing our spiritual poverty, so we cannot continue to grow apart from an ongoing poverty of spirit, Hugh says. Look at what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea who thought they were really something. Revelation 3. Can't find it. Verse 17. You say I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous about repentance. That's why we're going to keep doing things like have times of confession and lament in our worship services. because we, we, need to be, we need to be zealous about repentance. Hugh says poverty of spirit is foundational because a continual sense of spiritual need is the basis for ongoing spiritual blessing. A perpetual awareness of our spiritual insufficiency opens us to continually receiving spiritual riches. Poverty of spirit is something we never outgrow. And in fact, the more spiritually mature we become, the more profound will be our sense of poverty. I've seen Bruce Hornsby in concert about three, three times, I think. If you aren't familiar with him, look him up on Spotify or follow me on Spotify and you'll just see how many times I listen to him. Uh, each time I've seen Bruce Hornsby or any other standout keyboardist such as Harry Connick Jr. or Diana, maybe Diana Krall, I've concluded one of two things. Either I should hang it up and never play again <laughs> or two, I should practice a lot more and maybe take some additional lessons When you see and hear the greats, you realize that you're not all that great. Similarly, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we grow spiritually, the more we realize we need him. I used to get discouraged because it seemed that I wasn't growing spiritually, that, that my character seemed worse than before. But I've come to realize that I have been growing I have nearly two decades of journals to show for it. <laughs> it's just that I perceive there's a greater need to grow, for God to chisel away the sinful aspects of myself, the parts that don't look like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 12, Paul says, Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The more spiritually mature we become, the more profound will be our sense of poverty. Amen? Matthew 5, 3, say it with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I mentioned earlier, the reward is both present and future. It, it is now and not yet. 
The not yet gives us something beyond our comprehension to look forward to. 1 Corinthians 2 says, This is what the Scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. The not yet is further than our imagination can conceive. Yet we can get a glimpse of it now. What is meant by the kingdom of heaven? Isn't heaven simply the place we go when we die? Jesus is there, right? Well, he is. <laughs> Look at what N.T. Wright says. Heaven is God's space where full reality exists, close by our ordinary earthly reality and interlocking with it. One day, heaven and earth will be joined together forever, and the true state of affairs, at present out of sight, will be unveiled The clue, he says, comes in the next chapter in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus tells us to petition the Father, saying, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. The life of heaven, Wright says, the life of the realm where God is already king is to become the life of the world, transforming the present earth into the place of beauty and delight that God always intended. And those who follow Jesus... We are to begin to live by this rule here and now. That's the point, he says, of the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the Beatitudes. They are a summons, he continues. They are a summons to live in the present in a way that will make sense in God's promised future because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the taste Have you ever been to Young's Jersey Dairy? Some of you. Arguably the best ice cream anywhere. Well, I love it uh, when when you're there and um, you go and and there's all this, I I mean, they have so many flavors and you're interested in a couple, a couple different ones perhaps and and the person behind the counter says, hey, would you like to try one of them. And you're thinking, yeah, I mean, that's, the, that's what I'd love to do. So they give you this little spoon, and it's just enough. And inside, you're shouting. You're thinking, yes, this is the one I want. But you don't actually shout it out because you remember you're an adult. And um, ice cream, though, makes us all feel like we're six years old again. Well, they start scooping it out for you. Scoop. People around here say dip, don't they? Dip. Hand dipped. That just sounds wrong to me. Anyway, I don't want anyone's hands in my ice cream. So they send you down to the counter, and you're just waiting for the full revelation of your blackberry, black raspberry chocolate chip. You can still taste it, and you know it's coming. You're watching them prepare it. You're thinking, yeah, give me more. I want some more. Well, this is where we are right now as God's people One day, God will reveal his glorious kingdom in all its fullness. But today, when we live as though the kingdom has already arrived, we catch glimpses of the beauty of God's plan of redemption. And that's what the church should taste like. We should be known, Jesus said we are known, by our love for one another, the way we care for one another, the ways we are patient and kind and tender-hearted, the ways we forgive one another and 
help each other grow spiritually, the ways we comfort one another, when we encourage one another, exhort one another, when we're simply there for one another. This is the kingdom of heaven that is ours when we realize our spiritual poverty. The black raspberry is coming, but we can still taste it now. The first link, Charles Spurgeon wrote, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness, not my merit, but my misery, not my standing, but my falling. Wonderful news for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. What I'd like to do is encourage us to pray. I'll pray in a moment. Um, but I, I just want to encourage you to take some time to just pray uh, by yourselves and um, to yourselves like, or to God, but quietly. And ask God where you are in this. Are you leaning on your, your own works? And if so, what, what can be done about that? Or, or maybe you're not living in, in the way that God designed. You're, you're not living in the way that he wants you to live. So maybe he'll tell you about that. So take a moment and then I'll close this in prayer.